Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and welcome to the first of three episodes we recorded during Adobe Make It in Sydney. I worked with Adobe as the speaker and content manager, so I wasn't able to join in these episodes. So we invited our good friend Ian Hay from Ketchup as a guest host. So massive thanks to Ian and Adobe for making these episodes happen. First up, the guys spoke with Nicole Tung, an amazing photographer we had the pleasure to bring to Australia from Turkey. Uh, Nicole gave a captivating talk on the main stage at Adobe Maker and her journey and experience is incredible. This episode was recorded backstage during the event and we'll pop you into that conversation right now. So Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Can I just say firstly thank you because in preparation kind of leading up to meeting you, I just spent a long time deep diving into what you do. It's amazing that we have jobs like yours because we actually get to see what's really happening. I always get this feeling that we'd, we'd have a very manicured view of the world if it wasn't for, what would you call yourself? A photographer, photojournalist, I guess. Because <laughs> it's almost an investigative kind of side to it as well because you're, you're deep entrenched, aren't you? Yeah, a lot of times you have to really spend, I think the best pictures come when you spend time on a particular story or subject. You know, the, you don't always get that chance to spend that amount of time. You have to just quickly go and do a, a news shoot, for example, um, and you only have a day to do it. But I really love spending time with people that I'm photographing because they're giving me that opportunity and that access and the time to spend with them. And, and I think that's a privilege for me. How hard is it to kind of build, because I imagine there's a trust that you need to build there. How hard is it to build trust? It really depends on the situation. You know, if somebody is uh, in in a very traumatic or going through a very traumatic uh, event, it can be very difficult. You know, they're so distraught that you sort of just try to stay in the background and, and be as non-intrusive as possible. Sometimes um, if I'm doing a story that is a lot deeper and I am able to spend the time on it, it's, uh, you just have to kind of be very honest and genuine with people and uh, honest about your intentions and what you plan to do with the pictures and, and just be personable with them. I think that's probably the most important thing. You know, uh, you have to give a little bit of yourself because they're giving a bit of themselves to you when you're taking their pictures. And uh, that's the way that you build up trust with people. Do they have any, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Libya or you know, some of the amazing places you've been, do they have any kind of concept of how the photos will be used? So say you're shooting for New York Times or something. Does that, does that make any sense to them? Sometimes it's a little bit difficult because most people are, they know television, so they ask, what channel are you from? And it's right. like, no, I'm doing still photography for newspapers. So you kind of have to explain that a little bit. And then most people do get it. Again, it also depends if there's something happening uh, like a, a funeral or a protest or something, that's a lot easier to understand than a deeper, more engaging story where you really have to go into people's houses or, uh, you know, and that you have to spend the time to explain, well, I need to be here to get these kinds of pictures, something more candid. I'm not just taking, you know, posed portraits, for example. How hard is it to spend that time? Because I guess you, it's all about who's paying your wages, isn't it? You know, it, it definitely journalism has changed in the last 20, 25 years where there's uh, huge budget cuts to editorial mm -hmm. photography assignments and long-term projects. So a lot of the, f 
funding that goes to long-term projects now, for example, I'm doing a story on violence against women in Turkey right now, is funded by organizations and you know media organizations that are supporting long-term stories. But if you know if you're lucky enough to be able to get an assignment from a magazine or a newspaper, they do. They you know really invest the time and the money, but it does cost a lot. Mm. So we're seeing fewer and fewer of those stories come from actual publications themselves because yeah. of the time and money that's invested in them. How does that then um, stack up against say like people like the new players like Netflix or that kind of thing? Well, I think uh, in terms of documentary filmmaking and, you know, with still photography, it's it's very, it's a different, uh, you know, avenue that you go. It's, it's a lot of social media that you have to be able to use. And, you know, as a, I'm a bit of a Luddite in the sense that I, I it took me a very long time to get on Instagram, right. um, you know, and, and in a way, you know, photographers, still photographers especially, have to build their own brand out of their own yep. identity, which is very anathema to what I like to do because I, I don't want to be the story. It's not about me. Yep. And I like to kind of be more, it's about the story that I'm covering, the people in them. And But more and more I find that the audience is interested in the backstory. Like how did I get that picture? And what's the what's the behind the scenes um, situation? And like how did you get to there to do this? And so you kind of have to compromise a little mm. bit. Um, but with Netflix, yeah, I think that there's it's definitely opening up the, the number of people that you're able to reach uh, the internet, obviously, democratizing technology. Um, so there's a lot of exciting things, but also quite, you know, ooh, <laughs> scary things as well, because you don't know how it's going to shift the business model again in five years. Mm. I've got a, um, a question around when you're back in a comparatively safe city like New York, for example, if you're visiting New York, mm -hmm. Does it sometimes feel surreal that people are going about their everyday lives when you know what's going on in another part of the world? And is it ever frustrating that people aren't hearing these stories from conflict zones or misunderstanding them? Yeah, it's definitely frustrating when you go back to a comparatively safe place because I think you, well, there's a decompression phase where after you come out of a very crazy situation where it's very you know, traumatic and violent, and you go back into a place where people are walking down the street with a latte in their hands, and it all seems very cool and normal. It can be very jarring, and you go to the supermarket, and there's just rows and rows and rows and rows of laundry detergent or something. You know, mm. you're just like, what is going on? But I think, I you know, a lot of people have different ways of dealing with it. I tend to isolate myself for a week, and then start to realize, well, actually, this is normal it's fine to be, this is like actually, this is what normal should be, people walking down the street with lattes in their hands and yeah, yeah. you know living their own lives, whereas the place I was just in is not normal and I can't normalize that. So you know, it takes a little bit of time to get back into the groove of things and, and realize that it's okay, yes, people have their own lives to live, they've got work to go do, and, and if they're not paying attention to the story that's going on halfway around the world, well, you know, most of us are interested mostly in what's just going on in front of us, you know, and, and mm. that's human nature, really. It's I can't, I can't blame people for not caring about what's happening, but is it my job still to make them care? Yes, it is. Right. So that I have to, you know, I feel more motivated, actually, well, I should get back there and continue covering something. And then to flip that on its head, I mean, you, you talk about like decompressing after being in a conflict zone when you come back to a relatively safe city, but you don't get to decompress when you 
enter yeah. or compress, as it were. When you enter a conflict zone, I mean, you've just got to hit the ground running. I mean, what's, what does that feel like and how do you cope with it? Well, each, I think from the three kind of countries I've been in which are undergoing conflict, I think it's always, you can only do so much to prepare yourself. Um, you know, there's different ways of preparing, which is one, obviously, mentally preparing yourself, being aware, uh, okay, always of the risks that are, are there, that are present, that could happen, and ways to mitigate those risks, you know, not always taking the same road in the morning or not leaving at the same time. Uh, also having adequate training. A lot of freelance journalists now um, are required to have first aid training to know how to treat wounds, for example. So there's a lot of different, you know, and being organized, obviously. Um, if I'm a mess and I feel like all my cables are in the wrong places, I'll just, you know, I'll t take a moment to try to repack everything and have my sort of, yeah, everything in the right order. Because <laughs> yeah. you mentioned before that you were a bit of a Luddite, but naturally technology plays a role. I mean, do you find yourself having to skill up, um, you know, with new equipment or the new techniques? So how do you learn how to improve your craft? I think with, uh, I'm a very, I'm sort of a purist in the sense that I really still believe in still photography. So sometimes when clients ask me, can you shoot video or can you do audio? I'm very, I try not to be too reluctant, although in my heart I'm going, I just want to take pictures. <laughs> but. But you know that's part of our media industry and, and the environment right now where you have to have other components to kind of make up a piece of a story. And I'm willing to do that because I think that you know if it engages people more, mm -hmm. if it gives them another perspective on a story, then that's great. And I think you know with you know changing technologies, virtual reality, for example, if it immerses people more and gives them a better understanding and context of a subject, for, you know, if it's like violence against women or a war, then I'm all for it. Yeah. We talking about that kind of getting prepared. I think it was in the Netflix documentary you're in, where there was a scene where you were actually packing your bag, and there was like a helmet and bulletproof vest. Mm -hmm. and I mean, that that just seems so out of my kind of understanding. But what what other stuff do you take that uh, on that kind of trip that other people just wouldn't be aware of? A lot of things, <laughs> like cliff bars, you know, oh, really? things that, you know, like little things that you might miss from home or just, yeah, emergency food, emergency coffee, that's the most important right. thing. <laughs> uh, first aid kits, um, medicines, um, and and f as few clothes as possible, but, uh, and good pair of shoes, for sure. Right. So, yeah, and it depends, like when I was going to Iraq, I packed um, a gas mask, for example. Wow. Um, and the same goes to even covering protests in certain countries where they use tear gas. So it really depends on the, the situation I'm going into. But I generally, a lot of it is like first aid and you know things that I, I will, if I need, um, to have handy. And as you're putting that stuff into your bag, what's going through your head? Is, is there like a, an excitement that you're kind of getting back into the field or is there apprehension? I think if I had apprehension going into a dangerous place, I probably would take a moment and say, am I doing this for the right reason? Because if I don't feel comfortable or, or excited, cautiously excited about going into a dangerous place, um, for example, last year I was packing to go to Iraq and I was excited, you know, not gung-ho excited to, yeah, I'm ready to go and see people firing guns and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but if I had apprehension or any sort of doubt uh, I think that's sort of the warning signal to me from my own gut that maybe I shouldn't go or maybe I should 
consider where I'm going and how I'm going about it. Um, so I, I read um, in one of your interviews that um, you're pulling back from the front line, that you're, you've taken, you can only take so many photos of people kind of on the very front line and so you're pulling back, which presumably makes your friends and family um, happy as well. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many different risks now, though, to journalists, like kidnapping is one of them. Mm. And, um, you know, when I started out in covering conflict, and, and the same with a lot of other photographers, I think, it's exciting. It's very adrenaline rush, you know, inducing to be on the front line and to be amidst the action. But I realized after a while that, yeah, it is exciting and it can be very addictive. It's, it's a drug, you know. Um, you realize that maybe after a while that it's not necessarily where the most important story or the picture is even. Yes, there, there are pictures to be had, but that's not the whole story. It's a very narrow perspective on what's going on in the rest of the city or the country or whatever it is you're covering. So I think that not only is it just safer to be away from the front line sometimes, but also trying to be a bit more mature in what I'm focusing on and not just the most kind of obvious picture. You had a great quote where you said there's only so many pictures of guys shooting guns that you can you can take or that the audience needs to see. And it's true. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those pictures win awards. Um, but yeah. it's, well, first of all, that's not my motivation for doing this. But I think that, um, I think f for our sake and for the audience's sake, to give them a better understanding of what's going on in the country. You know, a lot of times, like for in, in Iraq or Libya, Behind the front lines and, and in the towns that were kilometers away, things were still happening and yet there was no fighting. So, you know, I think it's a common misperception that the country is embroiled in a war all the time, 24-7, which is not true. I mean, people still go to the market, they yeah. open their shops and, you know, things are still happening, um, just not in the most sort of, and journalists tend to go to the most, <laughs> you know, yeah. dramatic of places. and. So trying to step back a little bit from that is, is um, it's hard, but I think it's also an obligation of journalists to do so. Yeah. Um, I was curious to know about how much you can plan for one of your trips. I mean, you can bring all of your gear, you can bring your cliff bars, you can bring helmets, and all these kinds of bits and pieces. But presumably when you're there, I mean, you can have a, an outline of what you want to achieve. But I mean, do you, do you just have to react to the circumstances as they occur? Again, it depends on, on the situation. When I was starting to cover Libya, for example, the, uh, I, I sort of came out with very general a general overview of the uh, war itself and not a specific story, for example, like you know, if I was doing something on a particular unit of fighters or on the families of um, people who've disappeared. I didn't really do those kinds of more intimate, deeper stories. I kind of just did a lot of frontline you know, the fighters and how they were changing. Many of the fighters were just regular civilians um, the weeks before. So, but, you know, that I didn't really have a plan. I was just like, okay, wake up, okay, go to the front line, come back and start editing pictures and then go and do the same thing the next day. Whereas now I'm a lot more purposeful and um, intentional about what I'm going to do. And especially with the danger of being kidnapped, you have to be you know, in contact with the people you're going to meet beforehand and making sure that the road is safe enough to drive on. Uh, so I've, uh, it's a lot more planning now, um, and I think that's probably the safest way to go about it, mm. instead of just <laughs> willy-nilly going in there doing whatever. Because your first trip, I mean, you've talked about that it was a little bit willy-nilly, um, and that you also spoke about that it, if it wasn't for kind of the more 
uh, mature, experienced um, journalists that you, you may not have come out um, so unscathed. What sort of lessons do they teach you that sort of stick out in your mind? Um, well, I think that they were, so a lot of these journalists had been, you know, covering conflict for 20 years and more. Uh, a lot of them were in Bosnia during the Balkan conflicts in the 1990s. And, and, and so I really looked up to them and um, looked to them in terms of how they moved around and how they spoke to people, how they assessed the risk of what they were doing. And it was just a, a way of basically absorbing myself in, in learning how they navigated war zones. Um, and also a lot of it was being mature myself. Like I had to not, I had to take it seriously and I knew that I had to take it seriously. Uh, but they did, you know, teach me a lot of very basic things like why don't just, you know, if somebody's firing an RPG next to you, <laughs> <laughs> don't stand behind the rocket because you'll get burnt or you know very simple things like move away from this situation if this you know so very basic things but very critical things yeah just the stuff you could never have picked up in school yeah exactly I mean you can learn that from hostile environment trainings um, but uh, at the time it, you know the war had just started and nobody really expected a war to start and I happened to be there so I had to learn on the fly and the people were gracious enough to to take me under their wing. Mm. I, I was curious about the the genesis of your career. So was did the photography come first or the journalism come first or did they dovetail? And when was there a moment when it sort of dawned on you the power of a, a picture to tell a story and to persuade people or to inform people? I think that journalism and photography sort of, yeah, it, it sort of became a natural collaboration in my own mind where at first I wanted to be a journalist and I was really interested in writing um, and you know traveling but I didn't really I was always taking pictures since I was 15 but I didn't really hone that in the sense that I was like I could use this as my vehicle for a message or a story but I think that really changed when um, you may have read this but I went to Bosnia in my first year of university because I'd been reading a lot about the wars in in Bosnia uh, and, and the Balkans. So I went there for it's my first year. I was like 19 years old. And uh, my parents were like, where, you're going where? <laughs> <laughs> and um, the war had already been over for a decade at that time. But I contacted local NGOs and I wanted to meet with people who had fled from the, there was a massacre in a place called Srebrenica in 1995. And thousands of men and boys were killed. And so their families survived. Um, and I wanted to meet the women who are, still living in these internally displaced persons camps. So I contacted local organizations and I met them. And I wasn't, you know, I was a college kid. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just talking to them, asking them questions, interviewing them. But I was taking pictures with um, slide film at the time. And I just started photographing them as well. And when I got back to school and developed the film and I saw one or two frames in particular where you know there was just these expressions of the women on their faces it was a very candid picture I realized that for me you know I'm a lazy writer so <laughs> it was so much more powerful first of all to to see the picture and then you know to have that uh, that feeling the emotion of a picture more so than I would ever be able to put into words I think and that's when I realized that I think you know I this is really what I want to do and I had already you know uh, gone through a lot of books by you know photographers from the Vietnam War um, 
you know, Larry Burroughs and, and Don McCullen, who covered a lot of different conflicts around Africa and the rest of the world. Uh, so I was already quite influenced, I think, in a way. But it had to come to a certain point where I was like, this is the direction I want to go in. And that was, that was the t point. You've written some really lovely stuff. And your photos always have um, such a story involved in them. And if I think about one, is probably from Libya, where it looks like you're on the back of a truck and people are running. And there's just so much that I want to know about that particular thing. But how do you get that across to your audience, if not through writing? Uh, I think to be a good journalist, I also have to be uh, accurate and truthful in what I write in, in the captions. And people may not read the captions, but that doesn't matter to me anyway. Mm -hmm. I, like, I have to be accurate. I have to give people that option of having that information to read, um, whether they choose to read it or not. Um, yep. But it's, it's crucial because it also provides context to the pictures. It provides some more information. It provides um, things that people may not necessarily have known about you know, the, the, the situation or something. And so I do as much as I can to get the facts right. I do a lot of note taking. And yeah, it's trying not to be lazy yeah. <laughs> on my part. <laughs> but that picture in particular was uh, taken out of the back of an ambulance. There was shelling that was coming down the road from the government side, so the rebels had to retreat. And I was running just with everybody else, and the nurses in this ambulance said, come, come into the ambulance. And I, I jumped in, they started driving off, and I started taking pictures out of the back window. And I could see people just frantically, you know, running and trying to get out of there as well. With some of those amazing shots you've, you've managed to get, what's, do you take, like, just shot after shot after shot, hoping that one works? No, I think, um, I mean, a lot of photographers do. They just kind of run their camera yeah. shutter like a, a machine gun, which I, I really, first of all, really, I don't like that sound. And secondly, <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I think that, you know, it would, it's, I'm almost doing a disservice to photography in the way that I'm not really looking at what I'm photographing if I'm not being purposeful about the composition, the light. Right. So I do, you know, I love actually working with um, slower cameras sometimes because it does slow me down. Mm -hmm. And if there's a very fast happening situation going on, yeah, I do take quite a lot of pictures. But if there's, you know, something that I see that I feel like I should take the time to compose it, most of the time, I, I do 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 that, yeah. Because there's, there's actually uh, a lot of beauty in your work, and even though they're in these tremendously distraught regions and so on, does the does the beauty help to reach a, an audience? Is that a, a, a conscious thought? I think pictures have to have impact. Um, I think that you know images need to have some sort of bridge connecting common human emotions that we all have whether you are from Syria or Australia you know it we all share very common emotions whether it's loss or joy or you know the whole range of it um, and I think for me that's the most important thing is to be able to capture the you know the essence of people's emotions or even if it's like a picture of a building what does that represent and how is that going to come across to people viewing the picture. So I'm constantly thinking about it because I, I think that if you don't have a purpose in taking a picture or showing a photograph, then if it doesn't connect with me, then how is it going to connect with other people? How has uh, technology in terms of everybody's got a camera on them all the time now? Is, have you seen 
more sort of reporting from civilians or from and people on the front line is that having an influence on the way that people perceive events internationally yes definitely i mean with the arab spring that started in 2011 that was really the that was like the mobile phone generation revolutions and war you know everybody had the opportunity to be their own journalists in a way recording video of the protests and and that was that provided a really great insight into a lot of the places that originally journalists couldn't get into and also where journalists had been but became too dangerous for them for example in Syria you know a lot of the foreign journalists left because it just simply became so dangerous and so it was left to the local um, citizen journalists and journalists and activists to record video and we really as the international media relied on their footage and um, pictures to piece together what was happening inside on the other hand you know sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish facts from fiction and yeah. um, we have to be very careful about you know the pictures that we use in the media um, if it's taken from a local source you know we have to be able to verify whether that event really happened or was it a picture that was just rehashed from some time ago you know and so yeah it can be sometimes very difficult but we and and also it takes um, away the need for foreign journalists to be in a certain place sometimes where it's like well we have a local journalist there they'll be fine you know but I think you know in a way a lot of uh, publications still send in foreign press or, or other you know even local press who have a better understanding of course of their own culture and the language but it just to have a different perspective on it and also to have a different take on it to be able to provide some context to the readers or audience back home yeah. to being that bridge again you know so it's just different different perspectives I think. Has that kind of the citizen journalism changed the way that that your clients are allocating budgets? Yes I mean it, it's really great for local photographers for example there's a lot of really talented local photographers in Ghana or yeah. Nigeria who can do the stories that we do because you know they're there they're trained they can speak the local language without having to hire somebody else which is what I would have to do um, so it's actually really great that they're getting a little bit more you know exposure and also the assignments and that also can provide better understanding to the audience as well because I might miss the nuances of yep. a situation while I'm there that's not to say I don't think that we you know I obviously I still work in foreign co uh, countries but again it's also what's the perspective uh, that I come from and that might be different from a local person's so mm -hmm that's really up to the publication sometimes or maybe because I pitched a certain story that somebody locally hasn't done yet and they you know because I've done all the research and such I can go in and just do the story. Um, when you're in these conflict zones the relationships that you have with your interpreter for example uh, are really life and death right and it can make a huge difference yeah. to how you how you're able to survive. Do you maintain these relationships? I mean, how what are the, what's it like to be in that situation? And then um, do, you, do you get to continue talking to people or do you seek them out again? Yeah, I was um, actually just talking to one of the people who was helping me when I was in Syria. So there was a group of students from the University of Aleppo who first brought myself and my colleague into the city when it was still under uh, regime control. And these students were obviously in the opposition so they um, snuck myself and my colleague into the city 
And you know, if they were caught, it would have been death for them, for sure. Um, and for us, maybe imprisonment, uh, but not you know, the situation that they would have been in. Um, so they really risked their lives for us. And I still maintain great relationships with them until today. I, you know, we're always messaging on Facebook. And I say that anything you need, can I help with anything? Anytime you come to Istanbul, you've got a place to stay. Because they hosted me and um, made sure that I was safe and got the stories that I needed to. Uh, and I really, I still am in great debt to them for, for keeping me alive, basically, you know. So those relationships, especially when you go through a very difficult event or a traumatic event, you forge very strong bonds with the people that you share that experience with. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to let that go. And, and their motivation to help you out and, and really put their lives in danger is that because they want to get the story out, is that what's motivating them? Yeah, they really wanted to get the story out. There weren't many journalists at the time that I was going in. And and also for some fixers in different, we call them fixers, they, they help set up interviews, they you know basically are your local eyes and ears there. Uh, for some fixers, it's their livelihoods, you know, and, and you know we try to keep them safe and well paid as possible so that they can continue working. We have a good working relationship together. But with the people I met in Syria and Libya, they were you know, they called themselves revolutionaries and, you know, they just did it out of the goodness of their hearts and also because they wanted to have um, foreign coverage yeah. there. Yeah. It's really interesting, the whole fixes. And I, looking through one of your bios, I noticed that you were um, part of the FFR, mm -hmm. the um, Frontline Freelance Register, which led me down a whole tunnel of like, <laughs> wow, I just couldn't, like the amount of insurances you have to buy. and Yeah, it's very, um, so, you know, obviously, most insurance companies will say, well, if you're going off to the war zone, <laughs> why, you know, forget yeah, forget about <laughs> it. Um, but there is a whole industry for people, you know, NGO workers as well, um, yeah. people working in the UN and journalists who go on dangerous assignments. There is a whole market of insurance for, for us uh, because we obviously need that coverage. But it, you know, it can get really expensive. You know, mm. for example, if I go to uh, a level one, which is like the most dangerous place that they have on their list, <laughs> a level one country. It can cost you anywhere between three hundred and five hundred dollars per week or a few days, wow. or you know, it just depends. And then you have to think about not just medical insurance, but kidnap and ransom insurance if it ever. So comes it's a to separate that. insurance. It's a separate wow. insurance. Yeah. So that's why it's prohibitively expensive for yeah. some publications to send people somewhere for more than a few days. A lot of publications, they're getting better at this, but a lot of publications try to shy away from even talking about insurance. You know, what Frontline Freelance Register is trying to do is to create a better uh, work work ethic for all, but not just the journalists, but the publications to be respectful of, you know, we need to have these rules and risk mitigations in place before a journalist is sent somewhere uh, on assignment for you. They talk about that. Part of their job is also to build a community for what they call a, a very fragmented mm. profession. Why, why is it so fragmented? I think um, freelancers are fragmented because we're, first of all, spread out in so many different places. Yep. We also, there's no union for international freelance journalists, as it were. Like, in, you know, in each country, you might have a union for a certain group of people, but there's no union for a thousand freelancers all yeah. scattered around the world all doing different things so this was sort of the not a replacement but sort of a way to um, get everybody on the same table and in the same room to talk about well what are the issues well fair pay paying on time insurance yeah. um, 
uh, safety training, uh, digital security training, so a, lot, a whole host of issues that freelancers uh, have to deal with um, that we might not necessarily be able to access. And the reason why this came up was because it's also with a, the rise of um, the layoffs of staff journalists who are then starting to get more freelance jobs. There are more and more freelancers now mm -hmm. working not just you know in war zones but in newspaper for for newspapers and news agencies. You know we have to be able to have those resources that traditionally the staff journalists would have had. Is it fragmented as well because you're kind of like they're they're the opposition as well in the freelance. Mm, the publications are the opposition. More, more, more working with, like, you know, I guess I'm thinking. Oh, we're competitive. Yeah, yes. Yeah, oh, exactly. for sure. <laughs> yeah, freelancers are super competitive with each other. But I think when it comes to safety, you know, we're all very much. Sure. Yeah, that's the priority, and um, and having fair pay and insurance and things. So it's becoming a lot more collaborative, where the freelancers are like, yeah, maybe it works to actually work together yeah. <laughs> instead of against each other. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the, your experience of being in Turkey. It's a, it's a bit of a tumultuous time there at the moment. Um, how long have you been there and, and what's the, what's it, what does it feel like on the ground? So I've been living in Turkey on and off for about three years um, in total of, since 2012. It's definitely changed a lot and very quickly. Um, it's got a lot going on around its borders. You know, it borders Syria and there's something like three to four million refugees, Syrian refugees in Turkey. Um, not only do they have to deal with, you know, a lot of Syrian refugees, they also have their own political crisis going on in the country where, um, you know, uh, President uh, Recep Erdogan is trying to usurp more power and there's a lot of opposition uh, coming up against him, um, particularly from journalists uh, writing critical articles and also, um, you know, just general, generally about 50% of the population who's against his um, the new order of things. So it's been very interesting to witness uh, this change where previously it was very, you know, it, Turkey is a very multi sort of, it's a, it's a very fascinating place where you have both secular and conservative religious elements, um, people living very in close proximity to each other and peacefully for the most part. Um, but because of the situation going on in the Middle East, Turkey is affected by all of it, you know, Syria and, and the Arab Spring, and even though it's not part of, it's not Arab. Uh, but, um, and also, you know, there's a lot of things going on with the refugee crisis and the EU. So it's influenced by all of these factors going on. And, you know, of course, one a president <laughs> who's uh, trying to take it more power. So. I feel that there's more tension in the country where um, people feel very uncertain about the future. It's also been affected by terrorist attacks from um, the uh, Kurdish separatist group PKK and also by ISIS. So there's so many things going on in the country right now that um, people are worried. Mm. But, you know, hopefully because it's got 80 million people, um, it won't, you know, it's stable enough and it's big enough to kind of stay stable uh, for mm. <laughs> the time being. I'll just come back to the Netflix documentary because you, you said something that really made an impact to me and you said you have to take care of your head and your heart because otherwise you start to lose sympathy and empathy. How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, I binge watch <laughs> <laughs> TV <Yeah>. shows. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a very low point where I was like watching, I don't know, three seasons of 
four se what is it? How many seasons of like, what was this stupid TV show? It was about like high society in New York, you know, right. this horrific- Gossip Girl? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On Netflix. And I stopped at season four and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, you know, I watch like Game of Thrones and like everybody else does. Uh, thing, but I read a lot. I read a lot of history books and, um, um, you know, bi biographies and things like that. But also, I think it's really important to get out and do something that you actually enjoy doing um, mm -hmm. for for fun. Uh, you know, I love going out for good food and. Do you, um, do you take photography for fun? I do. I do like street photography. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, like especially after a very sort of difficult period of few weeks of working somewhere I might not pick up the camera for another week or two and um, just because it's it's a nice it's nice to have a break and yeah. when I'm taking pictures I feel like I'm working sometimes you know and it's nice to not feel that way the, the camera is a work tool yeah, yeah. and I'm th constantly thinking of oh, what's the composition here what's the light like and but it just going out and actually seeing seeing things and experiencing things without having to record it. Um, mm. I still think that's very important, even though some photographers might disagree. It's like, no, you have to have your camera everywhere you go. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> How many cameras do you have? Um, not very many, actually. I have like maybe in, at co in the cupboard, like six, seven cameras or something. And uh, actually to Australia, I brought a little Polaroid camera because I thought it'd be fun right. to do a road trip and just take some Polaroids. <laughs> nice. Are you a purist when it comes to um, post-processing, or do you do you, I I love I can I can change a bad photo into a good photo with Lightroom and uh, a glass of wine. <laughs> do you do anything to them afterwards, or are you a purist in that department? Yeah, I mean I I mean I do do edit I do tone my pictures. Um, you know I'll bring up the clarity or contrast or I'll change a few things in in Lightroom. Mostly I use Lightroom, not so much Photoshop. But I also have to be very aware of um, the ethical rules of journalism where I'm, I never remove anything from my pictures, like if there's a, unless it's like censored dust or something. But if there's, you know, someone's leg in the frame and it just looks off, don't touch it right. because it's, um, that's like crossing the line. Because right. um, once you start with the leg, then yeah, something else something goes. Something else goes. Yeah. And it's just, um, I, I've never done that, and I will never do that, because it's there, there are rules in journalism that you just can't, you know, if it's a fact that his leg was there, then okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, depending also, like, I've changed some projects into black and white, so I'll, that tends to take more toning than I would normally do. But also with uh, quick assignments, I don't, I just sort of do a general very quick, contrast brightness and stuff like that and that's it yeah uh, there was this amazing radio lab po podcast recently which was all about how they're able to synthesize speech and video and in this and it started out sounding this wonderful kind of thing but by the end of it i thought it sounded terrifying because yeah. they could basically generate anything um and in this era of fake news you know is that a is that a concern how do, how do people know that what you're presenting is you know, hasn't been. You haven't removed a leg, or yeah. that's, that it's ethically um, sound and presenting reality. You know, it's funny. Like the photojournalism industry is going through a bit of a self identity crisis because it's been found out that you know very famous or well respected photojournalists have done exactly that: removed elements from their pictures, and then and then they come out and say, "I'm not a photojournalist. I'm an artist." 
Okay. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's it's brought a lot of kind of questioning within the industry itself, saying how do you know that this person who's very well respected um, can be trusted? And I think that you can't always know. I mean, that we pr produce so many images a day. Like, how do you verify every single picture mm. that's coming out? But that is up to the integrity of the photographer, first of all. And also, um, you know, a lot of these pictures go to uh, awards, um, like the World Press Photo yeah. or um, uh, the National Press Photographers Awards. Even the Pulitzer, you know, they have ways of I double checking and identifying whether there's been um, something digitally manipulated. So like a forensic process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think those checks have to be quite rigorous. Yeah, and I just think that there has to be a better kind of check within the industry itself, like people um, being, you know, not nagging, but like reminding each other that, you know, this can't happen. Otherwise, like what's, we're just kind of digging ourselves into a grave. If we are making these mistakes and crossing ethical lines, then why should the public trust us, you know? Yeah. That was that actually um, relates to a question but that I had before, which was around when you're in a conflict zone, and you presumably when you when you land or you're in a new area, it's difficult to know who to trust. Is, does that play a big role? And have you ever have you ever wondered should I trust this person? Yeah, I mean it's very. I, I'm sort of I like to trust people, but I've definitely matured a little bit in that She's department. She's actually thinking that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I should trust you. So. But I think that you have to be a very quick read on people. Um, and you have to, and that, that you can only really learn a lot of times where you've been to enough places and say, okay, this person's kind of like, mm. and if that's the case, I try to distance myself. But generally, you know, I've found, I've been quite lucky, uh, knock on wood, <laughs> with um, finding very trustworthy people to work with. And and, and being able to stay safe, really, yeah. Right. You've talked about the building the, the bridge and the responsibility behind that. I've also read that you, you have said that you are letting anger kind of drive your motivation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think when I was talking about anger being a motivation behind a lot of the work I do, it's, it's, not, it's not like this unfounded anger. It's yeah. more anger about um, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, for example, in Syria, there were a lot of things I witnessed that are just, they're clearly wrong. You know, they're, they're human rights violations, uh, mm. you know, people being bombed out of their own homes when um, the Syrian government was dropping uh, rockets uh, on, on heavily populated areas that were just civilians. Mm. And, you know, this was clearly wrong. And I felt, you know, I was so angry after all the bombings that I'd witnessed and on and the innocent people that had been killed, that um, I still felt the need to go back. And even though people were becoming very fatigued with the story from Syria, I still, you know, feel a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. that if we don't, if we stop reporting from certain places or on certain stories, then then it won't be heard at all. Um, and the people who have a voice but aren't able to voice it or have a vehicle to to say what they want to say then you know then we've sort of not we're not doing our jobs yeah. do you think that that sense of anger at injustice has that been with you your whole life since you were a child yeah <laughs> i think my parents would comfortably say yes <laughs> um you know it was i would always argue with my parents and they were like you should be a lawyer i'm like i don't want to be a lawyer <laughs> yeah 
Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank really, you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. I hope I wasn't. I hope I answered everything. To you certainly <laughs> did. Okay, that was great. amazing. Thank you, thank you so much. Nicole. Yeah, thank you.